1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military and their families who are tuning in from around the world over the Internet today. Thank you for your many cards, emails, and letters. And I also want to welcome listeners joining us on new affiliate stations in New York, Florida, Ohio, Texas, Illinois, and from coast to coast in every state in the Union. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, historian, political analyst, and best-selling author Mr. Thomas Frank will be joining us to talk about a topic we're going to hear a lot about in the coming weeks as both parties head toward their conventions, and that is the topic of Growing Income Inequality in America. The latest reports indicate that over one half of the country's wealth is owned and controlled by less than 3% of the population. And according to former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, 95% of economic recovery gains since 2009 have gone to the wealthiest 1%. You might be asking yourself, how is this possible if the party of the people have occupied the White House 16 of the last 24 years? Well, stay tuned, because Thomas Frank is going to answer that question for us in just a few moments. But before Mr. Frank joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Thomas Carr Frank was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and grew up in a local suburb called Mission Hills. He attended the University of Kansas and University of Virginia, where he earned his undergraduate degree, and shortly thereafter co-founded the Baffler Magazine. Frank later obtained his Ph.D. in American History from the University of Chicago, Three years later, his doctoral thesis became the subject of his first book, titled The Conquest of Cool, Business, Culture, Counterculture, and the Rise of Hip Consumerism. Since that time, Frank has been researching and writing on cultural, economic, and political trends, including working as a columnist of the Tilting Yard for the Wall Street Journal, and also contributor to Harper's Magazine, the Financial Times, Le Monde Diplomatique, and other leading periodicals. Mr. Frank has published eight successful books, and today we're going to find out why his latest offering, titled Listen, Liberal, is flying off bookstore shelves everywhere. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, historian, political analyst, and author, Mr. Thomas Frank. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Frank.
3: Well, it's my pleasure.
2: First off, let me congratulate you on your latest book titled Listen, Liberal. Now, according to your book... The Democratic Party began shifting away from representing the working class toward representing the white-collar professional class sometime in the 70s. Tell us about that shift and how that set the stage for the income inequality we're experiencing today.
3: Yeah, it's a you know, it's a it's a long and winding story, you know, of how political parties change their stripes, but I think it's one that your listeners will find familiar. I think they'll find that it rings true. So in the um, in the uh, in the early '70s, the Democratic Party decided to reform itself. This is in the aftermath of the 1968 election, which everybody at the time thought was a terrible debacle. Remember, there were riots, and you, you know you remember this. And so uh, they set up something called the McGovern Commission to reform the party, and it proposed. It's very famous for having proposed the system of primaries that we still uh, live under today. And we just wrapped up the last. Uh, well, I guess there's one more primary to go. <laughs> it's basically primary season is over now, and and that was the the, the McGovern Commission set this up. Uh, McGovern, by the way, being George McGovern, who later ran for president himself. But one of the things that they did that's not uh, really well remembered is that one of the things that the McGovern Commission did that's not well remembered is they they removed organized labor from its uh, structural position within the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, we can talk about the reasons why they did that. uh, But basically, they had decided that organized labor wasn't really all that progressive anymore, which was a common attitude at the time. And uh, the result of that decision, you know, uh, is what, you know, regardless of what you think about uh, organized labor or unions or any of that sort of thing, when you remove working people's organizations uh you know from from the party you also remove their issues and that was sort of the beginning of it uh and it's it's gotten worse and worse and worse ever since then now interestingly enough the McGovern commission also had an idea about what group the uh, democratic party should reach out to and this is this is very this is fascinating uh the group that they wanted to sort of install as the a number 1 constituency of the democratic party was affluent white collar professionals and uh this has continued down to the present day, you know all through the uh seventies all through the eighties all through the nineties and today, if you uh you know read uh democratic party literature or uh look at you know any of the sort of the 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 big thinkers who are associated with the democratic party that is the uh the demographic group that the party cares the most about uh is affluent white collar professionals who are thought to be very liberal people, very progressive, very open-minded. But one thing, and this is the important, the essential point here, one thing that this group really doesn't care about, you know, they're very liberal on all sorts of issues, but one thing they really don't care about is uh, inequality, the problem that you mentioned at the start of the show. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, uh, who are these um, white-collar professionals you're talking about? Like, What kind of jobs do they have? Who are they?
3: Well, the, the classic it, these are um, jobs that require, generally speaking, require advanced degrees, uh, but sometimes only a, a college education. But at any rate, these are the what the sociologists call the professions, and it goes back. To the, you know, the, there's five main ones: uh, law, medicine, uh, engineering, architecture, and um, the uh, clergy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are the traditional ones going back centuries. Uh, today, though, you know, as the sort of post-industrial economy has, you know, grown and grown and sort of supplanted manufacturing and everything else, you've got, the, the, you know, the uh, white-collar professionals has become a really enormous category. I mean, a large category. It's it's still uh, only about uh, 10% of the population, 10 or 15% of the population, but it's it's much larger than it used to be. Uh, and so this is not a this is not a small group that we 're talking about, but it does tend to be a very affluent group mm-hmm. and so you know we have to make a really long story short when you know uh, President Obama has given many what I regard as very wonderful speeches about the problem of income inequality, and he really seems to uh uh, feel bad about it and yet his party can't really come up with any solutions to it. Whenever you, you push Democrats on a solution for inequality they, they throw their hands in the air. You know, There's nothing they can do. It's as though we're Uh, you know, uh, floating on the great historical tide that nobody can do anything about. And uh, this is the the, the reason that they do this, that they throw up their hands and that they can't propose any really reasonable, workable solutions is because they really aren't interested in it. Inequality doesn't really bother their uh, main constituency. You know, it's really not a problem for them. They Mm -hmm. like it.
2: In fact, they, 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 they
3: benefit from it.
2: Well, I, I, I don't know if I agree or disagree. I, I'm, I'm just sort of trying to wrap my arms around the fact that, that the representation and the target group that the, the Democratic Party was responsible for or, or held themselves accountable for used to be the working class. But somehow yeah. in the 70s, maybe they saw that the professional class was beginning to grow and that that yeah. was the growth market, and that was certainly a more lucrative market and more powerful market. And so they began to shift their attention, if I'm understanding you right. That's, that's
3: exactly right. Mm-hmm. Although they, uh, they, this all happened, um, the, the big change happened really before money and uh, uh, politics was a, was a huge concern. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back in the old days, um, and when I say old days, I don't mean that old i mean like uh the 60s 40s 50s 50s, you know that's That's also uh, become the old days now (laughs) yeah uh, democrats were routinely um outraised out fundraised Mm -hmm. uh by by republicans and it didn't stop them from winning all the time right now
2: we unfortunately we've got to take a quick break and we'll come back to that on the other side of the break but stay where you are we'll be right back with more from thomas frank you're listening to the costa report Imagine
4: hearing the words, your child has cancer. The emotional impact is staggering. They tell you that treatment may last for years, and you travel the long road between hospital and home. Your financial worries multiply, and you want to stay strong for everyone, especially your child. But nobody understands. Your friends and family don't get it. Where do you turn? For the last 18 years, Jacob's Heart has provided essential support to families enduring the unimaginable. We have been there from the time of diagnosis all the way through the course of treatment, regardless of the outcome. With no government funding and no reimbursement for services, Jacobs Heart relies 100% on support from our community to make miracles happen for families. Please support Jacobs Heart by going to our website, jacobsheart.org, or call us at 831-724-9100. Make a difference in the life of a child. Thank you.
2: Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com, that's RebeccaCosta.com, and order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now, you'll be glad you did.
1: Not available in all states. Whoa, what do you have there?
2: It's a recent Irvy's frozen
5: yogurt. We just had our robot make one. A robot made your frozen yogurt? Yes, from Reese and Irby's, the world's first fully interactive robot vending machine that serves nine flavors of delicious yogurt with six amazing toppings. And it's available for an exclusive franchise opportunity. Wait, you mean I can own my own frozen yogurt robots? And make money at the same time. These robots are the future of frozen yogurt franchising. They can be placed almost anywhere and operate 24-7. Malls, theme parks, grocery stores, you name it.
1: A robot that serves frozen yogurt. That's revolutionary.
5: Exactly. Recent Irvys Froyo robots are taking the market by a storm. No more messy yogurt bars, long lines, or do-it-yourself machines. Just delicious frozen yogurt in 60 seconds or less, anytime, anywhere. How do I get my own recent Irvys robots? It's easy, but you better act now. Locations and machines are going fast. Just go to FroyoFranchising.com. That's FroyoFranchising.com. Check it out now, FroyoFranchising.com.
2: Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report. I don't know if you feel a little sluggish in the middle of the afternoon like I do, but if you do, I'm going to suggest you try Pollen Burst. It's an orange-flavored energy drink that comes in a packet, and it tastes a lot like that other orange drink the astronauts used to drink. You know the one. Pollenburst contains vitamins A, B1, B3, B6, B12, pantothenic acid, vitamin D3, and gluconolactone, all designed to give you an energy boost that can last for hours. Pollenburst comes in a box of 30 packets for $56 or two boxes for $100, and you can order it right now at kscoteam.com. The next time you feel tired and need a little boost, skip the coffee, soda, or candy bar and mix up a cold glass of Pollen Burst and do your body some real good. Go to (music) kscoteam.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author, historian, and political analyst Thomas Frank. And before the break, you were making the point that the shift of the Democratic Party's focus from labor and the working class toward the affluent professional class occurred long before the kind of money we now see flowing into politics. And I wanted to let you finish that thought.
3: Yeah, so what I meant was that it, it, for for uh, for the Democrats, it just turned out to be a happy You know, a happy coincidence that the group they had chosen as their new, um, you know, main demographic uh, also was very affluent and is able to afford elections. But it it all works together now. So the, the money in politics is part of the story as well, as well as the sort of demographic shift.
2: Now, in spite of labor contributing and giving their support to Democratic candidates, the most critical legislation and policy decisions, such as NAFTA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, um, these have not favored the working class. So let me <laughs>
3: Yeah that's right. So, so <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean I can go through a whole list of things that were not in their interest. So let me ask you this. What's fueling labor's loyalty if they're not getting results? I mean there seems to be this broad gap between rhetoric and practice.
3: Yeah, well you've really you've put your finger on a important point here. Um, so, as as your listeners and as you know, it's you know, labor has continued to support Democrats, even though the de- the Democrats uh, have you know done all these things to sort of uh, demote them within the party structure and that sort of thing. Um, why do they do that? You know, they continue to give you know, just turn their treasury over to Democrats every four years at, at election time, and their members get out and really work hard for the Democratic Party. You know, run phone banks and. Drive people to the polls. They do all that stuff, and and what are and they're rewarded with things like you just mentioned NAFTA, you know, which was just uh, devastating to them, and uh, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is sort of the latest iteration of that of that long, long, long series of trade deals. Uh, that have been really harmful for them. Why, why do they put up with it? Well, What's going on? And, and, and believe me, you know, I talk to um, union leaders and rank and file people all the time, and it makes them really mad. Uh, but their fear—it's this—is the case of so many of the Democratic constituencies. They, their fear of Republicans is so much greater than their anger at you know being betrayed again and again and again by the Democrats. They're much—they think the Republicans would be much worse for them. And so they, they do basically for them, it's all a defensive struggle now. It's just anything to keep guys like Scott Walker out of the White House, you know. And, but this is, you could say this about a lot of democratic groups, that their fear of the Republicans I mean, you could say it about me. Uh, you know, I'm very critical of Hillary Clinton. But of course, I'm going to be voting for her this fall because I think Donald Trump is a dangerous man, and this is uh, this is this is the case for lots and lots of Democrats, and for so many of them, in fact, that the party has a saying uh, about people like us that we've got nowhere else to go. Have you ever heard this before?
2: Well, no, I haven't. But it's a default vote, and I hardly think our founding fathers had that in mind. No, they. Didn't. I mean, they You're did. Right. They weren't asking it's- you to vote by default. Right. But that's they, were, the they were asking you to vote for who you really support. And I think this right. is just, where, where Ralph Nader may have the right answer, this whole uh, none of the above. Yeah. Right? Well, this whole NODA you know, it's, uh, idea. It's
3: crazy. it's crazy that a country of 300 million people, you know, that's supposed to be the democratic light of the world, or that used to be anyways, that this is how we... Choose our leaders, uh, but that is the well, system. I just that don't we're, think
2: it's right, and I, you know, but I'm an indep- right. I'm of an independent, right. and I, I yeah. I'm, I'm really struggling, and I think I speak for a lot of independents, the fastest growing group. In the country right now, we're really struggling this year. The Democrats and the Republicans that are loyalists are struggling, but, boy, nothing compared to the, the fix that the independents are in.
3: Can I just add to that? Yeah. i just going to make, make you feel a little bit worse. Okay.
2: I don't know if you can, but go <laughs> <I> mean, ahead. <laughs> in, my,
3: in my view, I mean, you mentioned income inequality, <clears throat> and in my view, that is the, that is the great issue of our time. Uh, President Obama has said so as well. I think everybody knows in their heart that it is the the middle class of this country is coming apart. If that had happened when I was young in the 60s and 70s, when I was a kid, our politicians would be going berserk, falling over one another trying to do something about it. Yes. And today we just sort of we're just sort of sad about it. Basically, you know, in the in within the Democratic Party you know the the democratic party just chose the candidate who really doesn't care about that issue really does not care hillary clinton she cares about other things
2: well neither of she, them are talking about it
3: she doesn't care about that well bernie bernie sanders was talking about oh, it a
2: bernie lot. sanders that was his whole campaign but but yeah, in but fact right. donald trump's not talking issues. about income inequality well trump
3: is not he's not but he is he's talking about uh, things that are related to it like trade deals so there's a lot of the anger that that comes from income inequality that Trump is, uh, is appealing to, but no, he's not going to do anything about it. And what does that, what does that tell us? I mean, this, this problem is just going to get worse and worse and worse, and that's the definition of a dysfunctional state. There's something wrong. when Our, our political system can't address the big question before us. We can't even talk about it uh, you know, in a, in, a straightforward, in a straightforward way.
2: Well, let's uh, as talk I have, as uh, I have learned. <laughs> well, well, we're talking about it today and we're yeah. and we're going to make sure this gets on everybody's radar across the United States and we're going to do it today. Uh now one of these ideological shifts that occurred in the Democratic Party is the idea that we live in a meritocracy where those that are successful and are on the top are there because they got a good education, they worked hard and they deserve it. And you make the case that's in your right. book that this ideology really does cause party leaders to believe that the cure to income inequality is if you just give everybody a better education. But but you point out that there's really, that's a false correlation between education and whether income inequality will be fixed.
3: Yeah, it's, it's false in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, I mean, it's false in theory and it's false in reality. But if, if you just think about it for, for a second, meritocracy, Democrats really, really, really believe in what you just described, the idea that the people at the top of our society are up there because they deserve to be up there. It's all about merit. Um, and this is, it's no coincidence that all of the Democratic leaders of recent years were the kind of people that went to these very fancy schools uh, and that often is, that's what determined their entire life trajectory. You look at Barack Obama, you know, uh, went to Columbia University, Harvard Law School, was in the Harvard Law Review. You look at Bill Clinton, who was, you know, from some, uh, some small town in Arkansas, went to Georgetown, became a Rhodes Scholar. Yes. Went to Yale Law School. These are all very high-achieving people, but their achievements are through education. hmm not through, like, going out in the business world and, say, inventing something or patenting something or rising up through some corporate ranks, uh, in the way that Republicans typically do. Th- this is the hierarchy of, uh, professionalism. Professions are based on educational attainment. You know, the, the, the advanced degrees that you have, the, uh, societies that you're a member of. That's what, prof- that's what defines professionalism, is education. And so Democrats look out at the world around them and they say, Yeah, the middle class is coming apart. These terrible things are happening. Everybody just needs to... Get more education and become more like me. You need to, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. They, they, but it's you. Well, we'll talk about this after the break. But yeah, it's, let, it's I, I, whole I hate that ways. I got
2: to take these hard breaks because it seems it's like the way it we. way works, right, the way of the world. <laughs> we get in the middle of something and I've got to take a break. And, and but let's hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back to pick it up where we dropped off here on why education doesn't necessarily cure income inequality. You're listening to the Costa Report. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Sellers, and today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli, who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business?
5: Um, you know, in 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard, and planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture so it was really kind of an organic situation us being in agriculture in the salinas valley and then the extension of that went to grapes and here we are today to find out more about caraccioli wines visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown carmel california that's caraccioli cellars c-a-r-a-c-c-i-o-l-i cellars where one bottle is never enough
1: Hey, everybody. Dave Michaels here, and I want to let you know that pharmacist Ben Fuchs is coming to town June 14th, 15th, and 16th. That's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Tuesday, he'll be in Watsonville at the Portola Heights Clubhouse on Freedom Boulevard from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., then in Gilroy at the Best Western Plus Forest Park, 375 Leesley Road from 6 to 10 p.m. Wednesday, he'll be in Gonzalez at the American Legion, four nineteen Fifth Street, from 1 to 5 p.m., and then in Santa Cruz at KSEO Studios for CEOs only. Thursday, he'll be at the Aptos Grange from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., and then in San Jose at the Clubhouse, 15480 Union Avenue from 6 to 10 p.m. For more information and to reserve your tickets, call 831-218-5726. That's 831-218-5726 or email dm at ksco.com. Admission is $20 at the door. Free admission for CEOs, distributors, and military vets. But you have to call to reserve your tickets. 831-218-5726 or dm at kseo.com.
5: Arts Council Santa Cruz County invites you to ebb and flow. On June 18th from 12 to 2.30 p.m., enjoy fun art-making, river tours, and family-friendly activities on the Riverwalk next to the Water Street Bridge in downtown Santa Cruz. Join artist Heidi Kramer to make a major public art piece that celebrates our river. Information at artscouncilsc.org. Brought to you in part by KSCO.
6: You wanted to see me?
1: Yes, please. Have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? talent worth knowing about young adults of unique determination and experience an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position internship or even mentorship they might not have every qualification you typically look for but they're exactly who your company needs
5: i won't let you down
1: i know don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find cultivate and train this great pool of untapped talent brought to you by the ad council and gradsoflife.org Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 o'clock on KSCO, it's Perspectives with Dr. David Biles and Tom Quinn. Perspectives covers a number of topics, including holistic health, vaccinations, and government waste. Don't miss the next exciting Perspectives program here on AM 1080 KSCO. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1, right here.
2: back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Thomas Frank, who has a wonderful new book out titled Listen Liberal. And you're beginning to talk about uh, the relationship between education and you know, we, we keep hearing that if everybody just gets a great Ivy League education, that that will equip them, right, to go out into the world and uh, solve the problems that we have. And it works for the professional class, I, I believe. And so you're saying that the professional class now has gone back and said, well, if you just follow the same route, the same algorithm that I used to become the professional class, that you too uh, can can uh, be uh, successful, I think that's what we're saying. Yes,
3: that's that is exactly what they're what they're saying. And, and but there's you know, and it, it, once you put it that way, I mean every everybody that's listening to this show can understand how silly that is. Because we can't all be, you know, we're not we all going all to Harvard. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're not. Go- we're, just, we're not
2: all going to get degrees at Harvard and MIT. So what happens right. to everybody right. else? Exactly. That's the it's, question, and right? You know, and
3: you know what? It, and you know what? It, I mean, look. Uh, something like seventy percent of the U.S. population didn't go to college. What about them? You know, are we just writing them off? Uh, it's not a solution. So what I what I decided after thinking about this, you know, and writing about it and reading all of these books about it, is that this is not a Answer. This is not a solution to inequality. This is a way of rationalizing inequality. This is a way of basically saying, you know, it all goes back to you as an individual. It's nothing about society and about the, you know, lack of power that people have in their lives and over the way that the jobs that they do. It's all because you failed. You didn't get those great, you know, grades in high school. You didn't get that fat acceptance letter you know, to a great school, or you went to college, but you went to the wrong college, or you studied the wrong... Anyway, you see what I'm getting at. It's always a way of pushing the blame back onto Yes, the I, I call
2: this, I have words for this in my book, The Watchman's Rattle. I call this the personalization of blame. Anytime yeah. there's a failure to deal with a deeply complex systemic problem, you turn it back on the individuals and say, this is your failure. That's
3: exactly what's happening. Yes. This is exactly, is exactly what, right. what you
2: write about. And it is, it is basically taking the failure of a system and not dealing with it and turning it back on individuals. But in this case, we're talking about 93% of America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's to you blame. Know, it, I, I think there's a problem when 93% way, I, of you are wrong. There's, we're, <laughs> we need to relook this, at that.
3: I, I yeah, right. I say all this by the way as a great believer in education. You know, I spent 25 years of my you mentioned all the stuff that I did in the in your introduction. I went I got a PhD in history for 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 Pete's sake, you know. And uh uh, uh but I didn't do it because I thought it was going to make me
2: rich. Well, this is what I love about your book. I love about the fact that you are a PhD, you believe in education, you certainly put in your time, and you are a Democrat, and you are voting for Hillary Clinton, and yet you come out with a really courageous book. You must be getting a lot of backlash on this.
3: Well, not as much as you 'd think, and and for the very simple reason that the book has you know i 've written a number of books over the years, and uh, this one and i 'm not complaining here i understand i 'm not complaining this one has not uh, got any near anywhere near the kind of mass media attention that my earlier ones did my My earlier books criticized uh, conservatives and the Republican Party. You know, like, what's the matter with Kansas? Yeah. I, used to, I used to be on TV all the time, and it's a, it's a funny thing, so now I'm criticizing the Democrats. And all of us, well, and I think more importantly, I'm criticizing uh, professionalism, you know, which right. is, uh, professionals are, that's who buys books in this country. That's who listens to the, uh, you know, certain radio stations, buys certain newspapers, and to sort of, Go after the main assumptions of this group of people. I think is is a uh, uh, this is this is. I think I I think this is a pretty challenging thing. I and think it was
2: courageous. So I, I'm going to use I'm, the I'm word not courageous. A lot
3: of, well, that is you know that's very nice of you, but no. I the, the answer is I'm just I'm not getting much <laughs> much. But, you know, oh, you, know it's where, you know you know who's it, really it, interested I'll in this tell book? You. Yeah, who is For, foreigners? So, like, uh, German newspapers, Spanish newspapers, That's the British—you know—all of these people. Well, I, I think the well publicity,
2: the publicity is coming. Sometimes it comes a little later after people have a chance. Well, to I, really I hope so. I, hope so I think it's. I, 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 I'm
3: not, and I'm not trying to uh, boast here or anything, but I'm proud of this book. I, I mean, this. I, I you have every with...
2: right to be. The, this is a well-researched, well-written, well-documented book. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, as a radio host, I get 10, 20 books. A week. And and yeah. I, I would love to sit down and read them all, right? But but many times what happens is you can read the first chapter and and then the other 12 chapters are anecdotal support for the first chapter. And you might as well not read the whole rest of the thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. well, hey, you can't make any money selling essays. So that's what people do. They, they I take know, an essay I'll, and I'll, turn it into 200 yeah. pages. And it, yeah. it just makes me crazy that that happens. But I want to tell you that this book, particularly your examples using, uh, well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But, but let me go back to this income inequality issue. After World War II, People with college degrees, high school degrees, and no degrees could still work hard and they could still become part of the middle class. But but the thing that you point out is in the 70s, worker productivity, it continued to skyrocket, but wage growth stopped and it's been pretty flat ever since. So for some reason, worker productivity and prosperity became uncoupled. It's been uncoupled. Now, this is kind of difficult for people listening to understand. It means that the American worker became more and more and more productive and did not make more money.
3: Exactly. And that's, uh, for economists, you know, when I first started, opened my eyes and started noticing the world around me, you know, I guess in the 1990s, or noticing these sort of things, economists were all sort of shocked by this once they figured out that this was happening because it used to be in the uh, 40s, 50s and 60s that productivity and wages grew at exactly the same rate and they were basically defined in economic textbooks as, as growing at the same rate and then all of a sudden in at some point in the 70s they came apart and they've stayed apart ever since and to this day you know productivity grows and grows we all know this the economy every you know it's much more efficient it gets more efficient every year that's sort of the definition but wages never go up now why is that uh, there i mean uh, you know we, there's there's a, there's all sorts of different reasons for why it started but i think the ultimately the answer is 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 very is plain which is that workers have lost the power to demand wage increases so it's it's a political uh, issue rather than you know some something you know coming from I don't know, you know, the the, the laws of history or, you know, something mysterious. And that doubles
2: back to that ideology of meritocracy, because in a meritocracy, it's every person for themselves. And solidarity doesn't matter.
3: That is exactly right. The two are opposites. So if you are a believer in meritocracy, which is that, you know, everybody is, the, the people on top are up there because they deserve to be up there, uh, and, you know, you, you you work hard and you get ahead and all that sort of thing. It It, it is automatically uh, opposed to the idea of solidarity, which is the idea of, you know, this is the great virtue of, well, I'm talking like a person from the 19th century here. This is the great vert, class virtue of, of the but, working class. But, they you know, this it, is where labor is and
2: working, the working class got their power. That's where they got their voice. Yeah, of course. And yeah. it's been and it's, now undermined by the idea of a meritocracy.
3: It most definitely has. Now, meritocracy. You know, this is Hillary Clinton. Is in some ways, um, you know, she's she's a good candidate in some ways. But one of the things that distinguishes her is she really believes in the meritocracy. And so did Barack Obama. Uh, so I should shouldn't put him in the past tense yet. He's still president. Barack Obama really believes in the meritocracy in a sort of profound way and Bill Clinton before him as well. And all of their proposals for reforms are basically ways of making the meritocracy more meritocratic. So, you know, we're going to let everybody take the SAT. We're going to eliminate, and Hillary likes to talk about how she's going to break down barriers so that people can rise in their uh, professions. And, you know, which is, of course, we all want that. And she talks about breaking the glass ceiling. And, of course, we, we all want that. But what she's talking about is, smart and talented people getting to the top and she wants to pave the way for that but that's not our problem today
2: yeah that is not our problem today but i'll tell you wouldn't it wouldn't be the first time that we've been fooled by a sleight of hand <laughs> now we, <laughs> yeah, we have to take right. our last break but stay right where you are we'll be right back after these important messages from our sponsors you're listening to the costa report
6: Big Data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, Big Data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today.
7: Care from the Heart is a dedicated and professional home health care agency that's been serving families in the Tri-County Monterey Bay area for over 18 years. We help our clients and their families handle health challenges with determination, love and humor. When you work with Care from the Heart, we provide assistance with the utmost respect. Your team will consist of nurses, case managers, and home care specialists who will listen and you will design a flexible program to fit your specific needs, either short-term or long-term. You might need help with medication, personal hygiene, meal preparation, transportation, companionship, household chores, or pet care. We can even help you with the dreaded insurance paperwork. If the time has come when you must step into the role of caregiver for a family member, naturally you'll have questions and concerns. Care from the Heart offers classes that provide specific information and skills you'll need to become the positive and supportive influence your family member deserves. And we protect against caregiver burnout by offering periodic respite care for you. Whatever your individual situation, now or in the future, help is available. For a complimentary consultation, Call us at 831-476-8316. We can come to you or you are welcome to visit our office in Santa Cruz near Dominican Hospital. Our website is carefromtheheart.net.
6: Michael Olson's first law of the food chain. Agriculture is the foundation upon which we build all our sandcastles. That's right folks, no surplus of food, no sandcastles. So before we all get upset from the dust and noise of agriculture, let's get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show goes behind the scenes of the industry that keeps us all civilized. If you have a comment about the first law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSCO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the Food Chain.
5: What day was that?
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and our guest today is Thomas Frank. And to this point, we've been talking about this ideological shift which occurred in the Democratic Party uh, starting in the 70s and which you make a compelling case has uh, fueled somewhat the income inequality issue. And I agree with you. I think this is goes to the heart of our problems here in the country uh, but I, I want to switch gears for a moment and look at the GOP now. And, and it seems okay. as if Trump's message has begun to resonate with the working class, to who to to this point have pretty much put their stock in the Democratic Party. What do you make of that?
3: Well, that's been a long time in coming. So I, I wrote an earlier book that I wrote about twelve years ago was called it was called What's the Matter with Kansas? And it was about uh, working class conservatism. So it was about. Um, it was about this shift. Uh, I, I'm from Kansas, as you mentioned in the introduction, and so I went back home and, and watched what was happening there uh, politically. The state was moving to the right, you know, really dramatically, and it's, it's still going, by the way. But it was it was happening um, uh, because of working class people were flooding into the Republican Party and really changing the way it looked, yes. and the way it, the way it worked, and now it's happening at a national level. So it's it's a very familiar uh, phenomenon to me, and I think it's only going to get worse as we. Um, you know, I think it's unlikely that Donald Trump will will win this year. Uh, he has fired up a lot of people, but I think it's unlikely he's going to win because of you know he's so prone to putting his foot in his mouth. You know what I mean? Like he did just the other day.
2: I think but, you mean uh, his whole leg.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, but but uh, uh, but this phenomenon is just going to keep uh, growing. And getting, if we don't deal with inequality, uh, if we don't take these people's concerns seriously, it's going to, you know, you're going to have just one demagogue after another coming out there and and uh, uh, you know and 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 doing this sort of thing, building these kind of uh, sort of zany popular movements. Now that said, and you know, I, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I I'm not going to vote for him. I I have really mean things to say about him if we want to go down that road, but at the same time, you can tell you can it's easy to see why uh why people like him uh, for example uh trade you mentioned earlier in the show you mentioned NAFTA and the TPP well, Trump has been really forthright about what what terrible deals these are and people know he's right when he says this stuff uh and to the point you know bernie was saying the same thing and even hillary has now uh signed on has now is now or or well she was for a time was saying that she agreed with that but trump is saying in a it in a particularly compelling way that has that has obviously resonated for a lot of people and i think the rest of his message is you know Alternates between, um, you know, sort of reasonable and really scary. <laughs> but, but but the on fact the... <laughs> is,
2: his his labor policies are pro labor. They're pro. Well, this one clothes. is I mean, what he's
3: saying on what he's saying on trade certainly is absolutely. And uh, you know that's and that's important. And this is a huge issue. And you got to remember, this is. I think he chose this issue deliberately because it's part of the. Uh, the bad conscience of the Democratic Party, because uh, they used to, you know, oppose these kind of deals. When NAFTA was first proposed, it was a Republican deal. Remember, George Bush Sr. uh, is the one that negotiated it, and the Democratic Congress uh, at the time stopped him. And then Bill Clinton came in and got it passed and really took ownership of this issue of, of, you know, the neoliberal uh, trade deals and passed a whole bunch of them when he was president, all of them over Labor's uh, objections and you 've got to remember what these deals did to working people in America, not just people in unions but everybody they They basically gave management the at every workplace in America the power to say, "If you people object or criticize me or or say anything really uh, i 'm moving this plant to Mexico Mm-hmm. You know Whether they follow through on that or not, it gave them the ultimate rhetorical weapon. And you want, you want to talk about why wages are going nowhere and why workers have no power in this society. It's because of things like that. It's because of, of deals like NAFTA. And this is Democrats that did it. And this is a uh, – I, I mentioned bad conscience before. Whenever you talk to Democrats, they really start to squirm. When you bring up uh, NAFTA or you bring up the Trans-Pacific Partnership or any of the other uh, trade deals, because they, 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 you know they're very proud of them, uh, but at the same time they realize that when they pass these things, they ruined their former constituents, the the labor unions, the guys that give them money, the guys that are supposed to turn out and vote for them, and Trump knows it too. I mean, basically everybody knows it who's not. Looking at the world through, you know, partisan blinders.
2: Well, the way uh, we know what you're saying is true is because when the Democrats had control of the White House and the Congress, they did not act on making the reforms that the working class and the and labor needed. They had that perfect right. opportunity, and instead, the policies that were passed were against labor and the working oh, class. Oh yeah, oh my and, god, and well, that's, we're, we're that's a to... matter of fact. That's not something that we're just making up. And yes, right. uh, oh, I it, would uh, you know, uh, as a lead. Democratic leader, I would feel very uncomfortable being confronted with that.
3: Well, let me just make it. Let me just make your scenario a little bit worse here. So, there for two years, President Obama had the, you know, uh, had had uh, majorities in both houses of Congress, and they had, of course, the the big tarp bailout of Wall Street. Um, You know, uh, he was overseeing that. He was, uh, you know, head of the executive branch. His secretary of the Treasury was in charge of running the, the, uh, the Wall Street bailout. And there were all of these calls at the time to do something for homeowners, you know, do something for people whose houses are underwater. You're out there in California. You know what I'm talking about. And Obama refused to lift a finger for average homeowners. Um, you, you know, it's it's it, again and again and again when the Democrats have had all the power that you know they've had the all the power in their hands. They favor one class of Americans over another, and it's no should be no surprise to your listeners that that the class that they favor is a professional class. They look at Wall Street, you know, all these guys with advanced degrees, these guys writing these derivative securities, very complex, very advanced securities. And they look at these guys and they say, those guys are us. Those guys are our peers. You know, you had this whole problem in the Obama administration of the revolving door between Wall Street and, uh, and, and the executive branch. And by the way, now he's doing it with, you know, Google and Facebook and this kind of thing, Uber, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, at the beginning, it was all with, With Wall Street. And, you know, you wonder why they didn't get tough with these guys, why nobody got prosecuted, uh, you know, and everybody, they all got bailouts and average homeowners got nothing. Well, it's because those people are their people. That's, you know, the Secretary of Treasury looks at these guys on Wall Street and it's like, you know, they're homies. Now, you know,
2: we're almost out of time, but i want to I, I want to encourage our listeners today to go out and get this book. It's listen liberal. we did not have a chance to go through the evidence that you produce for the bluest state in the nation, Massachusetts, which you use as a uh, as a uh, very clear example of what happens when you move toward a meritocracy, what happens when you believe education is the solution to income inequality, uh, what, what happens when the Democratic Party turns its attention toward professionals and away from labor and the working class and opening up opportunities for people to uh, move into the middle class. And uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about that, but I found that fascinating that you can go uh, 50 miles outside of Boston and find uh, un- you know find poverty rates in 23 and 25 percent oh yeah. Was, uh, the, it the, was absolutely well, yeah well researched and well done um, and now do you have a website where listeners can go to get more information about your book listen Li- liberal
3: yeah sure it's uh, tcfrank.com. And I'm on Facebook, and I post stuff all the time, and I chat with people, you know, all that sort of thing. Absolutely.
2: Well, listen, we are out of time for today. Fascinating talking to you. And before we say goodbye, I want to thank you again for a very well-researched and written book and for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you, Mr. Frank.
3: Well, it was a pleasure being here.
2: If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Thomas Frank, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We love to hear from you. So drop us a line, let us know what's on your mind. And if you missed the full interview with Thomas Frank or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple, iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And speaking of governance and oversight in the United United States. My guest next week is former White House Press Secretary for President George W. Bush and popular political commentator Dana Perino, who's going to tell us what we should expect from the candidates at the upcoming Democratic and Republican conventions. So don't miss Dana Perino next week, right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa report. Mm-hmm.